Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the book of Numbers. Today, as we continue our studies through this book, we are in Numbers chapter 20. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter, but just a heads up for you that in the middle of this chapter, we'll hear uh, the account uh, of an exchange between Israel and Edom as they were trying to get to the promised land. I hopefully we'll have more to say about that next time when we come to chapter 21. Again, in, in my mind, it makes sense with the conquest later. Today, we're going to focus on the waters of Meribah uh, and what transpired there and what was the outcome afterward for Aaron and for Moses. Uh, so Numbers chapter 20, we're going to read the entire chapter and before we do that, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and seek his blessing on our study. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word, and by your spirit we pray that you would make it an effective witness to the hearts of your people. Help us, O oh Lord, to know you and see you, and to trust you more because of the time that we have spent in this, your word. Lord, our words and our actions are, uh, are incomplete and unable to do anything that we need for spiritual good. So we pray that you would do it for us, that you, by your Spirit, would give life as we hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're now God's word as we find it, Numbers chapter 20. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of this rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. So Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met. How our fathers went down to Egypt, and we lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers, and when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land, 
We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We'll not turn aside to the right hand or the left until we've passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, you shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. And they journeyed from Kadesh, and the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor, on the border of the land of Edom, Let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land that I have given the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my commandment at the waters of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor. And strip Aaron of his garments, and put them on Eleazar his son, and Aaron shall be gathered to his people, and shall die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. And they went up Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. As far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we speak of it together today. Uh, this week, I, I came across some of those, uh, those witty little one-line summaries of famous works of fiction. You've surely seen some of them. Uh, some of them are pretty good. I won't share all of them with you, but my favorite, I think, was the seven-word synopsis of the entire three-volume set of The Lord of the Rings. The summary was, short people face opposition while returning jewelry. That's pretty good. I like that. Now, if I were forced to reduce the book of Numbers to just one sentence, my one-liner would be this. The Lord reveals his holiness through an unbelieving people. It's not very witty. But it is, I think, accurate. What it lacks in wit, it makes up for in accuracy, because it contains those two twin themes that Numbers has paraded before our eyes for 20 chapters now. First, the theme of the unbelief of God's people, and secondly, the theme of the holiness of God. We have seen both of those time and time again. And so the New Testament, when it summarizes this time in the wilderness, it speaks of, uh, of this time by saying, so we see that they were unable to enter the land because of unbelief. And we've seen it. Over and over again, we've seen doubting Israel practically refuse to believe that God is able to provide for their needs despite his history of doing exactly that. So we've seen unbelief. But then, over and again, Numbers has also been teaching us about the holiness of God. We've seen it everywhere. We've seen it in the arrangement of the camp. We've seen it in the emphasis on the priesthood. We've seen it in the divisions between the clean and the unclean. We've seen it on the tassels that God told his people to put on their garments. Holiness is everywhere in the book of Numbers. Today we encounter holiness in a place that we might not think to look. Numbers chapter 20, verse 13, is going to be something of a theme verse for today's study. Look at verse 13. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them 
he showed himself holy. There's a puzzling statement. Puzzling because when we think of holiness, typically, as R.C. Sproul points out, we think of it as a kind of a synonym for purity. God's cleanness, his, his moral separation from sinful people. Isaiah in the temple. He encountered the holy, holy, holiness of the Lord, and the recognition of God's holiness immediately made him see his own sinfulness. And so that's one way that the scriptures speak about the holiness of God, about his perfect, all-consuming cleanness. But this account, at least on the surface, doesn't seem to be speaking about God's purity so much as it's showing us his mercy. Here is this people who, again, in the wilderness, do not believe that God can give them what they need, and yet God gives it to them anyway. He gives them what they do not deserve. And it twists our minds to think how this could be a representation of God's holiness, but that's what the text says. So against this this backdrop of Numbers chapter 20, this chapter today, I want to hopefully help you see God's holiness maybe from a different angle than you've considered it before. There are, at least, not an exhaustive list, at least three ways that we see God's holiness, that he reveals his holiness in this chapter. He reveals his holiness first through his people, and second through his leaders, and finally through his church. God's holiness through his people, his leaders, and his church. We begin with God's holiness to his people, and he does that by giving good things to those who don't deserve them. Now this first portion of our text seems almost so familiar as to be predictable. Here the people are again, here they are out of supplies in the wilderness, and here they come again grumbling to Moses, here they are again with thirsty throats, and here they come again with, uh, with complaining lips. If the book of Numbers was one of those cheesy pop songs that gets stuck in your head, even when you don't want it there, I think verses 4 and 5 would be the chorus. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Does that sound familiar? We've seen it so many times that we're tempted to miss the significance of the repetition. But there are details in this text that show us that the repetition actually is, is part of the point. We're supposed to be struck by the fact that this cynicism and this doubt just keeps showing up over and over again without fail. Take, for instance, the mention in verse 1 that the people came to Kadesh in the first month. Later in chapter 33, Moses is going to recount all the wilderness wanderings, and he puts Kadesh as the last stop before Aaron dies at Mount Hor, and Aaron dies at Mount Hor in the 40th year after they came out of Egypt, that is, the last year of their wilderness wanderings. That means that in chapter 20, the journey is just about at an end. The promised land is, again, quite literally on the horizon. The people could probably see it if they looked in the right direction on a clear day. The fastened seatbelt sign has already been illuminated. And as they are beginning their final descent, the people of Israel are still complaining about the drink service and economy class. Their complaint is so significant that these waters that God provides for them, well, they're given a name. 
Verse 13, these are the waters of Meribah. As your footnote tells you, Meribah means quarreling. Uh, that's another familiar detail. You may remember that all the way back in Exodus chapter 17, not in the last year, but rather in the first year that the people came out of Egypt, mere weeks into their freedom journey, they gathered themselves together against Moses and complained that there was no water to drink where the Lord had brought them. So, Exodus chapter 17, the Lord gave Moses instructions, and he provided water for the people. Exodus 17, verse 7 says, Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people. So the more things change, the more sin remains the same. We have two Meribahs, two quarrelings at the beginning and the end of their journey, 40 years of firsthand experience with God's goodness, and the remaining members of this Exodus generation still stubbornly cling to their hard-hearted doubt. Their almost unfathomable coup de grace comes in the beginning in verse 3. Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. In other words, they're looking back to Korah's rebellion and they're yearning for better days. Far better to suffer a quick death at the hands of the Lord than a slow death out here in the wilderness. Far better to endure the fate that awaits the enemies of God than the suffering that he gives to those who are his friends. And the question is, what should the Lord do with such an unbelieving people? How should the holy God respond when his kindness has been maligned by these people Yet again. Well, how would you respond? How would you handle this people? What would you do with this rebellious people if you were in God's cosmic shoes? Side note. I realize that, that playing the game of what if I was God is a pretty dangerous thing to do. Right? I realize that. Uh, and in fact, it, it lies at the base of most of our unbelief. Sinful man, not believing God's promises, imagines, you know what, I bet things would be better if I was in charge. If I ruled the universe, everything would be in its place. And so playing this game of if I were God is a dangerous thing. It's the way that we flirt uh, with blasphemy and rebellion. But in this instance, the point of the passage comes home to us when we wonder how we might have responded to the people. That's because the holiness of God is manifested to Israel precisely in the fact that God does not respond the way you would have responded. God does not deal with these people as you or I would have dealt with these people. You see, the Lord does not lose his temper the way you might lose your temper. The Lord is not worn down by 40 years of rejection the way you might be worn down by 40 years of rejection. The Lord is not reactive. He is not defensive. He cannot be cajoled or manipulated. He cannot be argued into a corner. He has determined to reveal the glory of his goodness through this infant nation wandering in the wilderness and not even their rebellion can turn him off of his course. Why? Because the Lord is holy, holy, holy. He is separate from. He is different than. 
He is absolutely unconstrained by this people who imagine that their complaints can somehow put him in a position of needing to give an answer to them. Again, R.C. Sproul is very helpful here. He says, when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that he is transcendentally separate. He has absolute power over the world. The world has no power over him. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. And so the question again is, what would you have done with this people? Because the answer is, not what the Lord did. Forty years of walking in the presence of God. Despite their arrival at Kadesh, which by the way means holy place, Despite their arrival at Kadesh, they have made zero forward spiritual progress. They're exactly where they began. And they come with their complaints, and the Lord gives instruction to Moses. And even despite Moses' unbelief, God provides the good things that this undeserving people need. Verse 13, these are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy, different, unencumbered by their rebellion. We heard that today in our Old Testament reading. Did you notice it in Hosea? Chapter 11, verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Why? For I am a God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Now, to be sure, the Lord does not give these doubters spiritual salvation. Right? Numbers 20 is not turning Scripture on its head. Genesis does not tell us that Abraham disbelieved God and God counted it to him as righteousness. That's not the message of the scriptures. Then the New Testament tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So he's not giving them spiritual salvation. Let's not overinterpret the gifts that God gives to this recalcitrant people. But what he does give them is time. What he gives them is water. He gives them life. He gives them another opportunity to turn in repentance when they have yet again seen the goodness of God that they did not deserve. Now here's where we turn from Israel to ourselves and we say, if that is what the Lord gave to them, how much more has he given to you, dear Christian? If this was how the holiness of the Lord provided for people who wished that they were his enemies... What has the Lord done for you who are called his children? I'm sure that you could look over your past wanderings with the Lord and you could find all kinds of places and instances in your life and your Christian history that you probably should have called Meribah by now. Times that you grumbled and, and quarreled and kicked against the goads and pushed against what he was doing. And by the grace of God alone, you were kept from outright unbelief like some of these people. And isn't it part of his mercy toward you? Isn't it a manifestation of his holiness? He is not like men. He does not come in wrath. He gives good things to people who don't deserve them. 
And he shows his holiness through his people. He also reveals his holiness through his leaders. It's our second point. Specifically, God shows his holiness through his leaders by holding the shepherds of his sheep accountable for their sins. It's another manifestation of his holiness. And so despite all this this pathos wrapped up in the rebellion of the people, the real story of Numbers chapter 20 is what became or, or what would become of Miriam and Aaron and Moses. One pastor said, by the time we get to verse 29, they are each dead, dead, and dying. Moses' older sister dies in the first verse. There's not much comment connected to Miriam's death, though she was a prophetess and a godly woman. The two brothers, on the other hand, are disqualified from entering the promised land. They're disqualified because of a failure that verse 12 connects to our twin themes of holiness and unbelief. Read it with me. Verse 12, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. That's the judgment. No entrance into the land. Forty years of leading this people and interceding for this people, and the Lord says no entrance into the land. That's the judgment. But what exactly was the sin? Why is the Lord coming down so hard on these men, especially Moses, who have served him so faithfully for so long? This is where we come back to that question I asked. Namely, how would you respond to this people if you were God? Here that question is important again, because the core of Moses' sin seems to be that that is exactly how he responded to the people as though he were God, as though he were in charge. Compare the instructions that God gives to his leaders with what they actually did in the sight of the people. Verse 8, God told Moses to do three things. He said, take the staff and gather the people and speak to the rock. Do those three things, he said, and you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation. Instead, Moses did four things. He took the staff, he gathered the people, he spoke to the people, and he struck the rock. Now, if we judge by by strictly human standards, we might wonder, what's the big deal? Moses made two tiny changes to what God had told him to do, and whatever he did do, it worked. Right? Verse 11, Moses struck the rock, and water came out abundantly. Again, if we're deciding by human standards, that's the end of the story because one of the ways that we love to judge what's right and what's wrong comes down to good old-fashioned pragmatism. If it works, it works. That's great. Keep moving on. The people got the water they needed. Who cares what Moses did or said? In the end, good story. But the Lord cares what Moses did and said. And he cares because the goal of this miracle was not merely to give water to the people. The goal of this miracle was to manifest the holiness of the God of Israel. Take a look at verse 9. In verse 9, we learn that Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. That's a good start for Moses. But notice, it's the staff 
from before the Lord. That means that the staff that God wanted to take center stage at Meribah was the staff from the challenge back in chapter 17. That is, he told him to take Aaron's staff. The staff that had budded and produced live almonds. In chapter 17, verse 10, God told Moses to take Aaron's staff after it budded, to put it back in the presence of the Lord, back before the testimony. Why? So that it would be kept as a sign for the rebels. It was something that God planned to use in the future, should need arise to put down the quarreling and the grumbling of this people. You see, the Lord has already given this nation a symbol of his power. He caused the staff of Aaron to bring forth life where before there had only been death. And now, in chapter 20, God commanded Moses to bring out that sign, that sign of God's power, and bring out that staff and speak to the rock. And bring forth life-giving water from the heart of this stone in the middle of the desert. The instructions were designed specifically to draw attention to God's ability. He is not like we are. He does what we can't do. He's different and separate and holy. And the instructions were meant to highlight that. That means it's not really a small thing at all. When we read later that Moses struck the rock with his staff. Not the staff. Not Aaron's staff that had budded before the testimony of the Lord. Moses said, listen up, you rebels. What do you want from us? Should, should we bring water for you? And then he committed a textbook example of what Numbers chapter 15 called a high-handed sin. He lifted up his hand. And it says he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. It's true, the Lord did give what his people needed. And it's a mark of his mercy that he, in a sense, leapfrogs over the sin of his leader in order to give good things to his people. But you see what's wrong with what Moses did. He was not upholding the holiness of of the Lord at all. He was not helping the congregation to think greater thoughts of God. He was trying to get them to think bigger thoughts about himself. And so we might call it a minor mistake. We might call it a, a momentary lapse of judgment. We might call it a cathartic release. You can call it whatever you want in order to justify it according to the terms of men. But God calls it the sin of unbelief. I suppose there are any number of lessons we could learn from the sin of Moses and Aaron. God speaks in the plural here when he brings his judgment to both of them. Moses seemed to be in the lead, but Aaron was involved. There are many lessons we could learn from the sin of Moses and Aaron. We could learn how frustration and stress can tempt us to do things or to say things that, that later we're going to regret. Uh, we could learn how even humble people can fall prey to sinful pride. But we also have to see, and I think this is the primary lesson for us here, we also need to see that God reveals his holiness by holding his leaders accountable for their sin. Let me ask you, haven't you gotten tired of the headlines that we seem to see on almost a semi-regular basis anymore? 
Haven't you been grieved by the stories we encounter in the wider Christian world about pastors or elders or leaders in the church who are sinfully taking advantage of someone who is under their authority? Haven't you grown tired by now and wondered what the Lord is doing when he will deal with these sins of prominent Christians in the media who are doing things that leave a bad taste in the mouths of unbelievers when they think about what it must mean to be a follower of Jesus? I assure you that these things don't just happen out there. They don't just happen in, in big E evangel evangelicalism, just in a wider Christian culture. They're close to home as well. For many of you, perhaps, sometimes the sins that we struggle with most are the ones that never show up in the headlines. The ones that nobody notices, the ones that nobody pays attention to, and we begin to wonder if life in the church might not work the same way that life in the world works. Where people who have power get away with terrible things simply because they have power. If you have ever wrestled with that, let God's dealings with Moses and Aaron be a down payment on his promise of justice. The Lord will defend his own holiness in the sight of his people. And one day that will mean holding leaders accountable for their sins. God reveals his justice through his people and through his leaders. He does it also through his church. Earlier I told you not, not to be, uh, not to overinterpret God's gifts to those unbelievers. Just because God gave them water didn't mean he gave them salvation. We need to apply that same caution in the other direction now. Just because God chastised and he, he punished the sins of Moses and Aaron doesn't mean that he cut them off from his covenant faithfulness. The evidence of that, I, I think, shows up in the end of the story of Aaron in verse 24. Verse 24, the Lord said, let Aaron be gathered to his people. For he shall not enter the land that I have given the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. You've probably heard that phrase somewhere else in the Old Testament before. Gathered to his people. It's the same language that's applied to Abraham. It's applied to, to Isaac. It's, a, it's applied to Jacob. It will be applied later to Moses when his time comes at the top of Mount Pisgah. All these men, all these Faithful followers of the Lord in the Old Covenant, when they died, they were said to be gathered to their people. It's one of the indications in this chapter that the Lord is working out his glory inside something that spans beyond the single nation of Israel gathered in the wilderness. He's got a bigger program going on. There is more than just uh, this congregation of this two, uh, two million odd people wandering around the outside of Canaan. There is a church that stretches across the globe and across the ages and enfolds all those who have trusted in the Lord. The New Testament calls this larger body the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Our Reformed tradition knows it as the invisible church. Not invisible in the sense that it's make-believe, but invisible in the sense that we can't see the fullness of it, but God can. The invisible church is visible to him because it is known, it is dear, it is intimate to the Lord. He knows them and cares for them, each by name. Chapter 25 of our confession puts it this way. 
It says, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head. I know that it's wrapped up here in the shadow and the mystery of an Old Testament turn of phrase, but that's what this is pointing us toward. It's letting us know that faithful Aaron, his sins notwithstanding, he fell short of the glory of God just like every believer before him and since him. He had sins and failures and, and shortcomings, and we won't list them all. But even in spite of his sins, faithful Aaron is part of that universal congregation. Numbers is also letting us know that God is determined to work through the church that our eyes can see in order to fulfill his purposes for the church that we can't. And so the Lord outlines a succession plan for the next high priest. He says that, that Eliezer is to be taken up with Moses on the mountain, and there he's going to be fitted with that ephod, with that breastplate, with that linen garment. There he's to have the turban put on his head, and even that golden plaque on the forehead of the turban that announces him, the high priest, as holiness unto the Lord. God says, take him up and, and keep on going. And so they did, verse 27. Moses did as the Lord commanded, and they went up Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, and he put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there in the top of the mountain. And Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. It is an exceedingly simple truth. Very far-ranging implications. The truth is that earthly leaders die and need to be replaced. You know, righteous Aaron was an important man. He was the first high priest for the nation of Israel. His ministry is recorded in the pages of Scripture so that generations of believers, and we ourselves, are still reading and learning about him. More importantly than that, his name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life because God will remember him for good for all eternity. Aaron was important. Aaron was foundational. Aaron ministered before the Lord for 40 years. And when he died, the people mourned him for 30 days. And then, and then they broke camp and they kept on walking. And that's how it works, actually. Leaders in the earthly church die and the church keeps moving forward. It's designed that way. It's supposed to work that way. Aaron died and Moses died. And Joshua died after both of them too. King David and King Josiah and Daniel and Malachi. And the church keeps moving forward. All 12 apostles died. Irenaeus and Athanasius and Augustine and Anselm. And because it's almost Reformation Day, John Huss and John Calvin and John Owen and John Knox. And you can pick all of your favorites if you want to. Righteous men who were used of the Lord. Some of them were prophets. Others were teachers. They were all men for whom we are thankful to the Lord, that he raised them up to address the needs of another generation. But every time I get a little too proud of what I have accomplished as a minister of the gospel, I have a card in my wallet, by the way, that tells everyone, if I'm ever pulled over, I can hand, uh, hand the police officer my ID and maybe slip in my minister's card underneath, that he knows who he's dealing with. 
If I get a little too proud of, of what I've accomplished as a minister of the gospel, I try, it doesn't always happen, but I try to remember a saying that I heard very close to the beginning of my ministry. The saying is this, that God buries the messenger and he carries on the message. Human leaders in the church, no matter how faithful, no matter how flawed, human leaders in the church die and have to be replaced. And guess what? God replaces them. He puts new men in new ministries to meet the new needs that face a new generation. And it means that if you ever begin to look around at the world and you get anxious, if you ever despair at what God might be doing with all the immorality, with all the turmoil, with all the uncertainties that we see around us every day, if you ever wonder what the Lord is doing in the midst of all of this muck, remember Eliezer. God is making sure that his church keeps moving forward. Eliezer is the image of God's determination to keep revealing his holiness through his church from one generation to the next until he brings that church into fulfillment. And the mention of fulfillment brings us to the far greater reminder that we find in Eliezer. You know, the church that spans the boundaries of time and space and language and mortality that church needs a priest that can minister perfectly to all of God's people for all of time. And Eliezer is a reminder that earthly leaders die and need to be replaced. That's why, probably not surprisingly to some of you by now, the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews tells us that the former priests, the ones like Aaron and his son, the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus Christ holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for the saints. This is not the point of the sermon where we say a word about Jesus for good measure. This is the point of the sermon where we point out that without Jesus Christ, all of these stories of the wilderness wanderings are meaningless for you. If there is no great high priest who joins that body and this body, then they're just stories about people walking around in a place you've never been, hearing promises that can do no good for you. But because there is one body, because there is one priest, because there is one head of his universal, invisible church, because there is one Savior, it means that God's commitment to them is the same as God's commitment to you. And God is determined to make known his holiness in your life and through his church and even through his leaders, and he's determined to do that despite your limping unbelief. Do you ever feel like the, the wilderness generation showing up at Kadesh and going, here we go again, and I don't know if I've gotten anywhere, actually. I, I've been walking with the Lord for decades, and I don't know if much has changed in my heart. Well, the Lord reveals his holiness through his people. He carries us Along At the beginning of the wilderness wanderings in Exodus chapter 19, he says, you see how I have saved you to myself, how I have carried you. 
to myself. He does the same four or 40 years on. He continues to carry us. He continues to lead us to himself. He continues to reveal his holiness to us by giving us good things that we don't deserve, namely spiritual salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he makes known his holiness. And he reveals it through the priest who brings God's promises to fulfillment generation after generation after generation after generation. The Lord is determined to reveal his holiness to his people, and he does it despite your limping unbelief. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh, gracious God and Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and your promises. We thank you for the priest whom you have given, who has conquered death and hell and the grave and all of our sin, so that we might find life in him and life eternal. Help us, O Lord, to trust in you. Help us to believe your very great promises and have life in you. O reveal your holiness through your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.